There is a tree that sits out in front of the building. It's a huge, huge eucalyptus. And it's bigger than any eucalyptus I've ever seen. And it sits there all alone. And I like to go out there and share life with that tree. And it seems to appreciate that I'm there. Our park sits on the edge of the bay so that I have the water constantly. And that's been my wilderness. I didn't have any idea that it was even there when I was young. And now I see it as if its place is where it is. And I'm the part that's not been there. I'm finding now that history means so much to me. It didn't when I was young. It does now because I find that I've made a space for myself in that history. And when I take the time to really look at that history and realize that, that it would not be what it is except for me, except for people like me. I'm Kate Tucker, and this is Hope Is My Middle Name, a podcast from Consensus Digital Media. The woman by the eucalyptus tree is Betty Reed Soskin. And the tree is in the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park, one of over 400 national park sites in America dedicated to preserving not only our land, but our history. And the stories we find in these historic sites scattered across the city or on the edge of town are of national significance, like the story of Betty's Park and of Betty. There are so many ways to describe Betty, and none of them could encompass the life that is in her. For 101 years, she's fully shown up for every experience she embodies, from author to singer, songwriter, record store owner, public speaker, community organizer, historian, mother, great-grandmother, storyteller, and park ranger. She's even got a middle school named after her. In 2019, Betty had a stroke, but she made a swift recovery, returning to her post at Rosie the Riveter National Historical Park in Richmond, California, helping visitors understand a complex history that her own story brings into focus. When she retired in March of 2022, she was America's oldest and perhaps most beloved park ranger a role she originally assumed at the age of 85. I spoke with Betty in the summer of 2021, and I'm honored to bring you our conversation today. 
Hi, Betty. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. I've been thinking about national parks, and I just came back from a visit to my own local national park, the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. And people think of national parks as these vast green spaces where we hike or camp. But I'd like to know when you think of the national parks, is is that what you think of? I don't, because the park where I am is a very small building, but it's the center of a scattered site park. The park exists all over the city of Richmond so that this park building is simply the entry point of what is a much, much larger experience. So we became, I guess, one of the original open site parks that told the story of internment of the Japanese, Mm. which was all over the state of California and Arkansas. It told the story of the explosion at Port Chicago, where so many men, 320, were lost. On July 17, 1944, in Port Chicago, just up the river from Richmond, a cargo ship full of munitions exploded killing 320 military and civilians and injuring 390 more. Two-thirds of those were African-American servicemen. A month later, in response to those poor and dangerous working conditions, hundreds of servicemen refused to load munitions. Fifty men were dishonorably discharged and sentenced to 15 years of prison. In 1946, 47 of those 50 were released. It told the story of so many people because that war was so huge. And it, it, it's a surprise to most people when they come because that's when they discover how, how large the park is. Mm. It's as large as history. And the entry point for many people when they come and visit Rosie the Riveter National Park is through your history. Yes. Because when I first came, the park had been planned as an homage to the women who had worked on the home front. And my history was the way the park started expanding. I had worked on the home front, but I had never seen a ship being built. I worked in a Jim Crow union hall which meant that it was for Blacks only. It was some miles from the shipyards, so I never did see what was being celebrated. And the only way I could relate to it was by taking in all of the rest of it. In taking in all the rest of it, Betty saw what was missing a history not reflected in the Rosie the Riveter exhibits. The history of Betty and her family. The history of Black Americans. She realized that, as she said in another interview, what gets remembered is a function of who's in the room doing the remembering. So she began to share her story with visitors. First, she shared her story on bus tours, 
hosted by the park. And then she shared her story on the stage of a small amphitheater. Her influence within the park and outside of it grew from there. And that began to expand the park from the beginning, I think. People trying to accommodate. It became a massive operation. And I'm very proud of it. Vetti has been known to say, I became a park ranger because somebody put a uniform on the life that I was already living. Betty did not apply to be a park ranger at age 85. What she means when she says that someone dropped a uniform on her life is that before becoming a ranger, Betty was Betty. She'd lived many lives, and she carried all of those experiences with her, from working in a Jim Crow union hall during the war to starting one of the first Black-owned record shops in America to dating Jackie Robinson. This is the Betty that moved into a segregated neighborhood where she went from protecting her family from death threats to being asked to speak for that same neighborhood to her local and national political representatives. It was that Betty who showed up to a planning meeting for the Rosie the Riveter exhibit and asked why her and her family's sacrifices during World War II weren't represented. And the National Park invited her to tell her story, and they gave her an official role and a uniform. Throughout your life, you've been so willing to stand up and, and speak out and be a voice. And so you're in these planning meetings. You're bearing witness to the history that you lived. And then were you ever surprised at yourself that you actually ended up a ranger? No, it seemed natural at the time. As it has been with most of my life, I simply move from one place to another. And I'm, I realize I'm there long after I've assumed the role I didn't have my first job until I was 50. All of these things came following that. And long after I had put on the uniform, did I become a ranger? Hmm. I feel like your example and your experience is probably inspiring to many young people who would come into the National Park Service whether to come to visit their park or to actually consider a career there. Do you have any friends or younger rangers that you've kind of helped step into their own legacy in the Park Service, tell their own stories? I haven't, I haven't realized the effect that I was having. In fact, it's something that I'm still somewhat puzzled by. But there are rangers who come in from all over the country to hear me speak. And they don't let me know that they're in the audience generally until it ends. Mm. But now I'm realizing how many of them have come. Betty has spoken countless times across the country, helping shine a light on her community's history. And she inspires others to do the same. I think that there is a Native American story that's probably never been told. Hmm. I wonder sometimes what that story is. In your documentary, No Time to Waste, 
there is a young ranger at the end who is telling that story because she felt empowered by your story. Yes. And that has been thrilling to me every time I see it. In Betty's home in Richmond, California, she's surrounded by objects that make up her own history. I ask her if she has anything that represents her time in the Park Service. She looks to a large portrait hanging on the wall to her left. It's her great-grandmother, Leontine Bro Allen, overlooking the living room. In the portrait, she's seated comfortably, one arm resting on her knee, her other arm on the chair. She smiles at the camera, free-spirited and strong. There's a picture of my great-grandmother, and she's there. She's everything. She's everything that there is. And she left 13 children, and they left children. Wow. And I feel like I am now carrying the DNA for the entire family. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. It all starts with her. She was she was a slave, born in 1842, and she died after living for 102 years. Wow. My mother's mother died when mother was born. And she lived to be 101, dying in 19, whatever it was, 95. And I was born in 1921, and I'm still here. (laughs) So that the lives of this country are embedded in those three lives. Hmm. And I feel the weight of that constantly. I feel as if those three lives have presented everything. I wonder at all the lives of all the people in the country who shared that same series of years and what they've done with it. Betty shared the stories of her great-grandmother's life, her grandmother's life, her mother's, and her own. She shared them on stage at Rosie the Riveter National Park. She also shared those stories on a blog she kept for many years, a blog she would turn into a book, Sign My Name to Freedom. And before all of that, she wrote songs. Before you started your blog, you were writing music. Yes. I'm so curious about that because I'm also a songwriter and musician. Oh, how nice. And I taught myself. Oh, nice! <laughs> I taught myself to play guitar as you did. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yes, yes. Why did you start to play music? I I started because I was living in the suburbs, where I wasn't wanted. Hmm. It was before blacks were allowed outside, and there were racial covenants that were embedded in deeds that talked about whether or not people could live where they wanted to. And my husband and I built a little house out in Walnut Creek 
where we knew we weren't wanted, but we knew that if we stayed there and met whatever they had to give us, that they would eventually change their minds, which they did. Hmm. So that the same place where we had such death threats for five years in the 50s, in 1972, sent me to represent them as a McGovern delegate to the Miami Convention. And all the things that went through that, the children who were mean to my children, all became... Something that you channeled into music, into your songwriting? Yes, I I did that because it was the only way I could deal with what was happening. Hmm. Because my husband, like all the husbands in the suburbs, was moving into the city every day and leaving me there Mm -hmm. with the children to face their wives who were angry. Hmm. And... I began to lose my sense of who I was. Betty's husband gave her a guitar. She taught herself to play. And in writing songs, Betty was able to reclaim that sense of who she was, at least at home. Music allowed her to tell her own story in her own way. Soon, the songs will be given a new life and a new audience in the documentary Sign My Name to Freedom, exploring her life and music. The director, Brian Gibble. He uses the music as a soundtrack. So you were able to sing them again recently? Yes, but only because Brian was doing a film and he was excited by what he was finding. And we went and found a disc that one of my sons had put together of about seven songs. And I put them into the computer Hmm. and heard them for the first time in over 30 years. Brian, the filmmaker, describes Betty as having a voice like Billie Holiday and the relevance of Nina Simone. They've found some 25, 30 songs that Betty had written during the 60s and 70s. What did it feel like to rediscover that and to hear them? I didn't realize they were really good songs. <laughs> they were simply a way of getting feelings that were inside, outside, where I could deal with them. Mm-hmm. But when I heard them again, I heard quite different things. <laughs> you surprised yourself. <laughs> I have found... Now, that my oldest son, who plays also and sings and writes music, 
we were singing, and I was able to come up with two or three songs that I didn't realize were hiding there. Hmm. And they're wonderful. I've heard they're wonderful, and I've heard that you actually performed them on a big stage. I did. Back in December of a year ago, I, I was able to appear with the Oakland Symphony. That that was at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. It's been re- restored to its original grandeur, splendid. Yes. And I was able to walk out. So the next thing we're going to hear is a piece by Betty Reed Soskin. And there were five choruses that had shared the Christmas program, and they were all lined up on the stage. I was able to walk out and sit on a stool and sing. We gather here, I feel you near, on this beautiful night, your hand in mine, this simple sign of love. To thousands of people. And I simply knew that this was where I belonged. And I came off that stage this simple sign of love. Thank you so much. So high that I walked up and threw my arms around the conductor (laughs) (laughs) and thanked him. (laughs) And, And I think that I might have sung for the world (laughs) at some point. I think so, too. If Betty did sing for the world, I'm sure she'd get a standing ovation. And in 2015, she received a very special invitation from the big boss of the National Park Service. I was invited by the Secretary of the Interior to participate in the tree lighting ceremony. In the season of hope and promise, reflection and celebration, it is my honor to present to you the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Wow. My two youngest grandchildren at that time were able to go with me and I went back and met the Obamas and shared the tree lighting ceremony with them Hmm. which was something I don't think I ever would dream I read in your blog you wrote Maybe I'm worth reading because mine is a voice of hope. I think that's true. Yeah. How did you find that voice of hope within you? When did you discover it? I wish I knew. I, I wish I could, I could tell you. Life, 
unfolds as it will. Mm -hmm. And if you don't push it, it comes out and develops naturally. And so many of those things you only can tell in retrospect. You go back and you say, this is what happened. But you almost never know exactly what has taken place. Yes. I don't know why mine is the voice of hope, except that I do know that it is. I don't know whether it's tied to the park. I don't know whether it's tied to my home here. I just don't know. Except that I do know that it's there. I do know that the hope is there. What's giving you reasons to hope these days? I think because I see the world coming together. Hmm. At a time when it's supposed to be falling apart. I see it coming together in a new way. When kids go down the street with their picket signs, I am thrilled that they are all racist. Hmm. When I was growing up, there were black parades and there were white parades. Now, it's no longer true to everything. Mm. I think that that's what I see as being more hopeful than anything. Amazing. Fetty, it's such a pleasure, and thank you again for taking the time. Thank you. Bye. Big thanks to Betty Reed Soskin for sharing her wealth of experience with the world and with us today. What a bright, shining light. Speaking of lights, that national tree is all aglow again, so happy holidays, everyone. We'll put more about Betty and her forthcoming documentary in the show notes. If you want to find your own national park, go to findyourpark.com. Hope is my middle name is hosted and executive produced by me, Kate Tucker. You can find me on Instagram at Kate Tucker Music. If there's someone you think belongs on this show, please send me a message. This episode was produced by Rachel Swavey with editing from Audrey No. Our sound engineer is Mark Bush. Music by the fantastic artists at Epidemic Sound and me. Big thanks to Connor Gaughan, our publisher and visionary at Consensus Digital Media. Hope is my middle name can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It would mean a lot to me if you would follow, rate, and even leave a review. It makes such a big difference. Hope is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. <laughs>